Chapter Two of Windsor Castle, Book Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Windsor Castle, Book Three, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter Two comprising the third great epoch in the history of the castle and showing how the most noble order of the garter was instituted strongly attached to the place of his birth edward the third by his letters patent dated from westminster in the twenty-second year of his reign now founded the ancient chapel established by henry the first and dedicated it to the virgin st george of cappadocia and st edward the confessor ordaining that to the eight canons appointed by his predecessor there should be added one custos fifteen more canons and twenty-four alms knights the whole to be maintained out of the revenues with which the chapel was to be endowed the institution was confirmed by pope clement the sixth by a bull issued at avignon the thirteenth of november thirteen fifty one in thirteen forty nine before the foundation of the college had been confirmed as above related edward instituted the order of the garter the origin of this illustrious order has been much disputed by some writers it has been ascribed to richard coeur de lion who is said to have girded a leathern band round the legs of his bravest knights in palestine by others it has been asserted that it arose from the word garter having been used as a watchword by edward at the battle of cressy others again have stoutly maintained that its ring-like form bore mysterious reference to the round table but the popular legend to which despite the doubts thrown upon it credence still attaches declares its origin to be as follows joan countess of salisbury a beautiful dame of whom edward was enamoured while dancing at a high festival accidentally slipped her garter of blue embroidered velvet it was picked up by her royal partner who noticing the significant looks of his courtiers on the occasion used the words to them which afterwards became the motto of the order on y soit qui mal y pense adding that in a short time they should see that garter advanced to so high honour and estimation as to account themselves happy to wear it but whatever may have originated the order it unquestionably owes its establishment to motives of policy wise as valiant and bent upon prosecuting his claim to the crown of france edward as a means of accomplishing his object resolved to collect beneath his standard the best knights in europe and to lend a colour to the design he gave forth that he intended a restoration of king arthur's round table and accordingly commenced constructing within the castle a large circular building of two hundred feet in diameter in which he placed a round table on the completion of the work he issued proclamations throughout england scotland france burgundy flanders brabant and the empire 
inviting all knights desirous of approving their valour to a solemn feast and jousts to be holden within the castle of windsor on st george's day thirteen forty five the scheme was completely successful the flower of the chivalry of europe excepting that of philip the sixth of france who seeing through the design interdicted the attendance of his knights were present at the tournament which was graced by edward and his chief nobles together with his queen and three hundred of her fairest dames adorned with all imaginable gallantry at this chivalrous convocation the institution of the order of the garter was arranged but before its final establishment edward assembled his principal barons and knights to determine upon the regulations when it was decided that the number should be limited to twenty-six the first installation took place on the anniversary of st george the patron of the order thirteen forty nine when the king accompanied by the twenty-five knights companions attired in gowns of russet with mantles of fine blue woollen cloth powdered with garters and bearing the other insignia of the order marched bareheaded in solemn procession to the chapel of st george then recently rebuilt where mass was performed by william eddington bishop of winchester after which they partook of a magnificent banquet the festivities were continued for several days at the jousts held on this occasion david king of scotland the lord charles of blois and ralph earl of Eu and gisney and constable of france to whom the chief prize of the day was adjudged with others then prisoners attended the harness of the king of scotland embroidered with a pail of red velvet and beneath it a red rose was provided at edward's own charge this suit of armour was until a few years back preserved in the round tower where the royal prisoner was confined edward's device was a white swan gorged or with the daring and inviting motto hey hey the white swan by god's soul i am thy man the insignia of the order in the days of its founder were the garter mantle surcoat and hood the george and collar being added by henry the eighth the mantle as before intimated was originally of fine blue woollen cloth but velvet lined with taffeta was substituted by henry the sixth the left shoulder being adorned with the arms of st george embroidered within a garter little is known of the materials of which the early garter was composed but it is supposed to have been adorned with gold and fastened with a buckle of the same metal the modern garter is of blue velvet bordered with gold wire and embroidered with the motto honey swa kimel e pence it is worn on the left leg a little below the knee the most magnificent garter that ever graced a sovereign was that presented to charles i by gustavus adolphus king of sweden each letter in the motto of which was composed of diamonds the collar is formed of pieces of gold fashioned like garters with a blue enamelled ground the letters of the motto are in gold with a rose enamelled red in the centre of each garter 
from the collar hangs the george an ornament enriched with precious stones and displaying the figure of the saint encountering the dragon the officers of the order are the prelate represented by the bishop of winchester the chancellor by the bishop of oxford the registrar dean garter king at arms and the usher of the black rod among the foreign potentates who have been invested with the order are eight emperors of germany two of russia five kings of france three of spain one of aragon seven of portugal one of poland two of sweden six of denmark two of naples one of sicily and jerusalem one of bohemia two of scotland seven princes of orange and many of the most illustrious personages of different ages in europe truly hath the learned selden written that the order of the garter hath not only precedency of antiquity before the eldest rank of honour of that kind anywhere established but it exceeds in majesty honour and fame all chivalrous orders in the world well also hath glorious dryden in the flower and leaf sung the praises of the illustrious institution behold an order yet of newer date doubling their number equal in their state our england's ornament the crown's defence in battle brave protectors of their prince unchanged by fortune to their sovereign true for which their manly legs are bound in blue these of the garter called of faith unstained in fighting fields the laurel have obtained and well repaid the laurels which they gained in thirteen fifty seven john king of france defeated at the battle of poitiers by edward the black prince was brought captive to windsor and on the festival of st george in the following year thirteen fifty eight edward outshone all his former splendid doings by a tournament which he gave in honour of his royal prisoner proclamations having been made as before and letters of safe conduct issued the nobles and knighthood of almaine gascon scotland and other countries flocked to attend it the queen of scotland edward's sister was present at the jousts and it is said that john commenting upon the splendour of the spectacle shrewdly observed that he never saw or knew such royal shows and feastings without some after-reckoning the same monarch replied to his kingly captor who sought to rouse him from dejection on another occasion quomodo cantabimus canticum in terra aliena that his works might not be retarded for want of hands edward in the twenty-fourth year of his reign appointed john de Sponley master of the stone hewers with a power not only to take and keep as well within the liberties as without as many masons and other artificers as were necessary and to convey them to windsor but to arrest and imprison such as should disobey or refuse with a command to all sheriffs mayors bailiffs etc to assist him these powers were fully acted upon at a later period when some of the workmen having left their employment were thrown into newgate while the place of others who had been carried off by a pestilence then raging in the castle was supplied by impressment 
1356 William of Wycombe was constituted superintendent of the works, with the same powers as John de Sponley, and his appointment marks an important era in the annals of the castle. Originally secretary to Edward III, this remarkable man became Bishop of Winchester and Prelate of the Garter. When he solicited the bishopric, it is said that Edward told him he was neither a priest nor a scholar, to which he replied that he would soon be the one, and in regard to the other, he would make more scholars than all the bishops of England ever did. He made good his word by founding the collegiate school at Winchester, and erecting new college at Oxford. When the Winchester Tower was finished, he caused the words, Hoc fecit Wycombe, to be carved upon it, and the king, offended at his presumption, Wycombe turned away his displeasure by declaring that the inscription meant that the castle had made him, and not that he had made the castle. It is a curious coincidence that this tower, after a lapse of four centuries and a half, should become the residence of an architect possessing the genius of Wycombe, and who, like him, had rebuilt the kingly edifice, Sir Geoffrey Wyatville. William of Wycombe retired from office, loaded with honours, in 1362, and was succeeded by William de Musso. He was interred in the cathedral at Winchester. His arms were argent, two chevrons, sable, between three roses, gules, with the motto, Manners maketh man. In 1359, Holinshed relates that the king set workmen in hand to take down much old buildings belonging to the castle, and caused diverse other fine and sumptuous works to be set up in and about the same castle, so that almost all the masons and carpenters that were of any account in the land were sent for and employed about the same works. The old buildings here referred to were probably the remains of the palace and keep of Henry I in the Middle Ward. As the original chapel dedicated to St. George was demolished by Edward IV, its position and form cannot be clearly determined. But a conjecture has been hazarded that it occupied the same ground as the choir of the present chapel, and extended farther eastward upon the question of its style says mr pointer from whose valuable account of the castle much information has been derived there is the evidence of two fragments discovered near this site a corbel and a piscina ornamented with foliage strongly characteristic of the decorated english gothic and indicating by the remains of colour on their surfaces that they belonged to an edifice adorned in the polychromatic style so elaborately developed in the chapel already built by edward the third at westminster the royal lodgings st george's hall the buildings on the east and north sides of the upper ward the round tower the canons houses in the lower ward and the whole circumference of the castle exclusive of the towers erected in henry the third's reign were now built among the earlier works in Edward's reign is the dean's cloister. The square of the upper ward, added by this monarch, occupied a space of four hundred and twenty feet, and encroached somewhat upon the middle ward. Externally the walls presented a grim, 
rectangular appearance, broken only by the buttresses, and offering no other apertures than the narrow loopholes and gateways. Some traces of the architecture of the period may still be discerned in the archway and machiculus of the principal gateway adjoining the round tower, the basement chamber of the Devil Tower, or Edward III's Tower, and in the range of groined and four-centred vaulting, extending along the north side of the upper quadrangle, from the kitchen gateway to King John's Tower. In 1359 Queen Philippa, consort of Edward III, breathed her last in Windsor Castle. Richard II, grandson of Edward III, frequently kept his court at Windsor. Here, in 1382, it was determined by council that war should be declared against France, and here, sixteen years later, on a scaffold erected within the castle, the famous appeal for high treason was made by Henry of Lancaster, Duke of Hereford, against Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, the latter of whom defied his accuser to mortal combat. The duel was stopped by the king, and the adversaries banished, but the Duke of Lancaster afterwards returned to depose his banisher. About the same time, the citizens of London having refused Richard a large loan, he summoned the Lord Mayor, sheriffs, aldermen, and twenty-four of the principal citizens, to his presence, and after rating them soundly, ordered them all into custody, imprisoning the Lord Mayor in the castle. In this reign Geoffrey Chaucer, the father of English poetry, was appointed clerk to the works of St. George's Chapel, at a salary of two shillings per day, a sum equal to six hundred fifty-seven pounds per annum of modern money, with the same arbitrary power as had been granted to previous surveyors to impress carpenters and masons. Chaucer did not retain his appointment more than twenty months, and was succeeded by John Gedney. It was at Windsor that Henry the Fourth, scarcely assured of the crown he had seized, received intelligence of a conspiracy against his life from the traitorous Amerly, who purchased his own safety at the expense of his confederates. A timely warning enabled the king to baffle the design. It was in Windsor also that the children of Mortimer, Earl of March, the rightful successor to the throne, were detained as hostages for their father. Liberated by the Countess Dowager of Gloucester, who contrived to open their prison door with false keys, the youthful captives escaped to the marshes of Wales, where, however, they were overtaken by the emissaries of Henry, and brought back to their former place of confinement. A few years later another illustrious prisoner was brought to Windsor, namely, Prince James, the son of King Robert III, and afterwards James I of Scotland. This prince remained a captive for upwards of eighteen years, not being released till 1424, in the second of Henry VI, by the Duke of Bedford, then regent. James's captivity, and his love for Jane of Beaufort, daughter of the Duke of Somerset, and granddaughter to john of gaunt to whom he was united have breathed a charm over the round tower where he was confined and his memory 
like that of the chivalrous and poetical Surrey, whom he resembled in character and accomplishments, will be ever associated with it. In the King's Quair, the royal poet has left an exquisite picture of a garden nook, contrived within the dry moat of the dungeon. Now was there made, fast by the tower's wall, a garden fair and in the corners set, an arbor green with wandis long and small, railed about, and so with leaves beset, was all the place, and hawthorn hedges net, that life was none, walking therefore by, that might within scarce any white espy. So thick the branches and the leaves green, beshaded all the alleys that there were, and midst of every harbour might be seen, the sharp, green, sweet juniper, growing so fair with branches here and there, that as it seemed to a life without, the boughs did spread the arbour all about. And he thus describes the first appearance of the lovely Jane, and the effect produced upon him by her charms. And therewith cast I down my eye again, whereas I saw walking under the tower, full secretly, new coming her too plain, the fairest and the freshest young flower, that e'er I saw, methought, before that hour, for which sudden abate, anon did start, the blood of all my body to my heart. Henry V occasionally kept his court at Windsor, and in 1416 entertained with great magnificence the Emperor Sigismund, who brought with him an invaluable relic, the heart of St. George, which he bestowed upon the chapter. The Emperor was at the same time invested with the order. In 1421 the unfortunate Henry VI was born within the castle, and in 1484 he was interred within it. End of section 2